Good morning, everybody. Uh, it, we are doing church differently today, obviously. We, uh, as most of you know, because you shouldn't be here at 1030. Um, if you are, you're finding out now, watching this video later, that we're not having services this Sunday and next Sunday, November 15th. Uh, we had a couple of cases of COVID-19 that were among our church family both in our work day, Saturday, and uh, church on Sunday. So in an abundance of caution, we are uh, canceling services this week and next week to give us the 14-day the uh, time period for anyone who might have been infected to, to have that uh, virus blossom, <laughs> to use a word that doesn't really go with that too well in their system, and that way we can know and, and keep as many people as safe po as possible, keep as many people safe as possible. So uh, this morning I am in a nearly empty gym. Uh, uh, my family's here to give me somebody to, to react to what I say, and then uh, we thank John Bridges for being behind the camera there and helping us out to do this. So... Um, no real announcements other than no services, and uh, uh, Tom or Amy's not here to open it up, and as you see, no music. It's just, just me today. So let's uh, open up in prayer, and we will dig directly into God's Word. God, we come to you this morning in, in the midst of, well, just still all the stuff, but just a new wrinkle in the stuff for us, uh, a situation that, that we anticipated was a real possibility for us, considering especially the, the spike in COVID cases right now across our country. Lord, this, just like everything else, was no surprise to you. This is an opportunity for you to work in our lives in, in a different way than we're used to, uh, for you to get glory, for you to use this situation for your purposes as people, uh, as we are people called to your purpose. Uh, God, we thank you that, uh, that it wasn't a surprise, that, that you, you aren't hindered. Your work isn't stopped. The Holy Spirit doesn't struggle with what to do next when these sorts of things pop up in our lives. So we thank you that your presence is everywhere and uh, you are still moving and working. We do pray for uh, our, uh, this is just an inconvenience really, um, but it, it, it keeps our church family from gathering and it keeps folks from uh, seeing each other and worshiping together. And so there are, there are painful aspects of it, but God, it's, it's, uh, the most painful aspect is the fact that we have two of our church family that are, are suffering from this illness. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that they seem to be doing better already and are uh, uh, beginning to improve. But we still pray for them, lift them up to you, uh, their family members and friends that they have come in contact with and will come in contact with, uh, or rather have come in contact with that could end up having it as well. And we just ask for your hand on the, the situation, that you would bless them and that you would uh, heal them, continue to heal them and protect those who came in, into contact with them in those uh, series of days. God, for our message this morning, we pray that even through a camera lens and uh, a TV, phone, or computer screen, that you would speak. You, you, again, you're not hindered by any of this. Your word is still your word. It's still true. Uh, your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, not in buildings. So we, we pray that the, the message this morning will be clear to all who hear it. And God, that you would impress on someone's heart their need for salvation today. Someone who uh, came across this video because a friend shared it or, or, or however it happened, watched it, heard the gospel, and responded in faith. That, that's our, our prayer this Sunday and every Sunday, and may you grow our church family. Uh, may you grow the hearts of believers, our knowledge of you, our faithfulness uh, to you, and our dependence on you because of the time we spend in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Joshua 5 and 7, as a matter of fact. Uh, Again, this is our uh, D group reading from this week, our... uh, um, I can never remember the name of the, what, the foundations, 260, I think is the number. Um, foundations, uh, D group reading that we do every day that you can find on our Facebook page or on our Faith Life app. Uh, if you don't have the Faith Life app, I encourage you to get it and search for First Baptist Sulphur. Uh, there you could follow along with those sermon slides, uh, just like I have on my phone right here. Um, or you can also, we've got them behind me this morning. I will not be doing the Vanna White motions uh, to, to get you to look at that. Just kind of follow along as we go. Uh, I'll also put those slides on Facebook at the, in the comments section of this video so y'all can see that there as well when you're, some of you are watching it later on. But Joshua 5 and 7 are where we're going to be. That was our reading at the beginning of the week uh, this week, or at least early in the week. The enemy within, that's the the, the title this morning. Um, Back in 1971, uh, there was a comic strip, and I think he still, maybe he still writes it, I don't know, or it's still printed at least, called Pogo. And uh, Walt Kelly was the, the cartoonist. And he was making a different point, uh, or certainly talking about a different subject than what we're talking about this morning. But in his comic strip, his main character sits on a a tree root and comes up with this phrase that we're all pretty familiar with, I think, especially over a certain age. We've met the enemy and he is us. And as we read read our scriptures this week... That was the sentiment that came to a number of our minds as we looked at it and uh, read what was going on with Joshua and the beginnings of taking over the promised land. Uh, God understood that the enemy for the people of Israel, the, the most dangerous enemy for the people of Israel, would be found within Israel itself. He knew that Israel had met the enemy and they were their own enemy. We, we had seen that, and we talked about it a little bit last week, as they moved through the 40 years. And even before the 40 years of wilderness wandering started, just coming out of Egypt, the, the uh, grumbling, the, oh, we should have gone back to Egypt, I, I, immediately they started with the whole things were better then than they are now. And now, and then we got to the point where the beginning of Joshua, the end of Deuteronomy, God tells them, y'all are stiff-necked people, and you've been a stiff-necked people since the day I brought you out of Egypt. He knew who the enemy was. Israel, sadly, didn't necessarily see it. They didn't understand it, and they didn't have the insight of Pogo or Walt Kelly to look at themselves and say, we have met the enemy, and that he is us. Now, as Israel moved into the promised land, uh, as they uh, began to take over, and that's where Joshua begins, they've already taken the land on the west side of the Jordan River, and three tribes have taken up residence there. The the three, three of the 12 tribes of Israel have taken up residence there. Now they begin to move in the, to the main section of the promised land, And uh, that's where Joshua picks up. But remember, they were told, as we looked at last week, uh, from the beginning of the Deuteronomy, don't forget the Lord. That was the command. As you go into the promised land, don't forget the Lord. Their focus as God's people was to be on their relationship with God and not the task. Now, of course, they had a a, a monumental task in front of them. They had work to do. They they had battles to fight. Once they destroyed a city, they would have to rebuild it. I mean, the, the list was long of all the responsibilities they had. But the important thing that God wanted them to remember was Him. 
the thing that they needed to focus on was that relationship. And, and every warning they get, as you read through Deuteronomy, as you begin Joshua, the warnings that they got and the, the subsequent events after those warnings make clear that the real enemy for Israel was within Israel. It was not without Israel. It was not on the outside. God made that clear to them over and over and over. So read with me uh, Joshua 5, 14 and Joshua 17, 1. Uh, those are the, the focal passages, the hinge passages this morning that we're going to look at. Um, we're going to talk about the scripture uh, in between and, and after, but that's the focus this morning. Uh, Joshua was near Jericho, chapter 5 tells us. Uh, they were planning on, I'm sure he was planning as the leader of Israel in the military mind, planning on how they were going to take Jericho and, and waiting on the Lord at this point. And uh, verse 13 says, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword, sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Now, interesting response from this uh, captain of, of angels, uh, as we find out he, uh, who uh, he is, uh, commander of the Lord's army. He says to him in verse 14, neither. That is a huge, huge statement because Joshua would have assumed, had he known who this guy was, he clearly didn't know, but even in finding out in the next sentence who he was, Joshua would have assumed and could be expected to assume that this guy would say, I'm on your side, Joshua. I'm from God. That is not what he said. He says, neither. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Now there are a number of things that we could notice in this, just in these first uh, few verses. Uh, first of all, the commander of the Lord's army shows up and he doesn't give uh, Joshua any instructions, doesn't tell him at all how to fight the, the battle, doesn't tell him at all how to uh, win the battle. Now, in the next couple of verses, beginning of chapter 6, the Lord will tell Joshua how to do that, but the commander of the army didn't. This episode only ends or only includes or only talks about the fact that where Joshua is standing is now holy ground. So what do we see from this passage? What's the, the big point that, that I think we need to get this morning? We need to hear this morning that God's side isn't my side. That's what the, the, uh, um, the angel says here. God's side is not my side. Joshua asks him, whose side are you on? Neither. Uh, during the Civil War, a man approached Abraham Lincoln, we're told, um, and everywhere I, I found says that this is a, an actual event. A man approached Abraham Lincoln and said to him, Mr. President, we trust during this time of trial in which the nation in, is engaged, God is on our side and will give us victory. Uh, Lincoln replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. Lincoln captures well the, the, the sentiment of the, uh, the, the captain of the, the angelic guard here, the captain of the Lord's army. Lincoln understood that it didn't matter what was important was not that the North or Lincoln or anybody else had chosen uh, correctly so that God would bless them, but instead that they had sought God and were doing what God wanted. There, there's a difference. We often 
pray, Lord, bless my next whatever. Lord, bless our time here. Lord, if this is your will, uh, make this work for me or may this work out. When God is really saying, hey, why don't you ask me beforehand and know what I want to do and then move forward. Uh, can you turn off that fan over there, please, ma'am? Uh, there's a fan blowing my pages and it's getting annoying. Um, so that's what the angel tells Joshua. He says, it doesn't matter, Joshua, uh, whose side I'm on. I, I'm not on your enemy's side. I'm not on your side. I'm on the Lord's side. And, and, and today, and, and it's foreshadowing is what this is, because at this moment, or at least in the next episode, in chapter 6, it will be clear that Joshua is on God's side. Israel is on God's side. And then we get to chapter 7, and it will be clear that Israel is not on God's side. God never moved, but Israel did. But see, God's side isn't my side. I don't expect God to, to, to come to where I am. Joshua didn't, once he met with this fellow, didn't expect it either. Two things that the angel captain's appearance assured, and that was victory and watchfulness. His presence there that day made clear to Joshua, hey, the Lord's army is here, and we are, the Lord's army, fighting for the Lord. We are on God's side. So if whatever God tells them to do as the army, as, as the true commander of the army, uh, that army is going to do. So it was they, the, Joshua's victory, Israel's victory at this point is assured because God's army has showed up. But what it also assures is watchfulness. It, Joshua knew, hey, God's watching. God's here. The, the, it, I, didn't, I, I never really thought he wouldn't be, but if I needed some evidence, if I needed a, a, a pep talk, if I needed to know that there was someone in the room observing what was going on, I just got it. The captain of his army, the commander of God's army is here, and he would be there throughout. And the, the promise is just here is, is the assurance is really just a restatement of the promise that God has already made. God had promised Israel before this and numerous times that they would prevail over the, the, the kingdoms and the, the tribes and the people that were currently in the promised land if they were faithful to God. And that's really the message here of uh, of the, the, the commander of the Lord's army when he tells Joshua, take your shoes off, remove your sandals, for the place where you stand, are standing is holy. He's letting him know obedience is holy ground. This is not holy ground for Joshua because Israel's here. This is holy ground because God's here. And, and if he is here, then you should be obedient to him. We can take that and extrapolate it out a little bit, I believe, to our own churches. It, it, this is not holy ground because it's church facilities. It's, it's not holy ground because it is or isn't a sanctuary this morning. It's just a gym. It's no more holy if we move across the courtyard into the old sanctuary or a brand new sanctuary. Those aren't holy places merely because of their existence merely because of the, the uh, decorations uh, and accoutrements of those rooms. Those are holy ground when God's people are obedient and God shows up. If the people aren't obedient, God doesn't show up. Uh, the, God doesn't rest in the temple in Israel right now, and He didn't for a long time, even when the temple existed. Why? The people weren't obedient. It wasn't holy ground unless the people were obedient. If the people were obedient, God was there. If they weren't, he left, and it just became a building built on rock. And that's all it was, and that's all it is today, and that's all any church is if we are not obedient to the Lord. Obedience is holy ground. We, we see from the, the, the statement of this commander that God both was and is on his own side. 
He, he is on his side. And we are responsible for getting to where he is, not uh, him coming to our side. We don't get to do things we think or like or prefer or whatever and say, therefore, God should bless us because we are doing the things as we understand them to be right or correct or interpret the Bible a particular way. It doesn't matter all those things. As far as being on the Lord's side, yes, there is a correct way to interpret. Yes, there are good things, right things to do that uh, God has told us to do. But we can do the right things in the wrong manner, and God will not be on our side. We can make the correct interpretation of this passage, but ignore this other, and God will not be on our side. We will think he should because, wait, I'm interpreting this passage correctly, Lord. I'm doing this exactly what you said, or how you said. And he will likely respond to us and say, yeah, but what about these ten other things that you aren't? So we want to be on his side. For the Lord, for God, for the commander of this army, and God was making sure to get Joshua to understand that at that time as well, the spiritual is more important than the temporal. The promise for the, the conquering of the kingdoms in the promised land had been made. That's, that is not even discussed by the commander of the army. And as a matter of fact, as we move through Jericho, you'll see the army didn't even fight to begin with. It wasn't even a battle. It was all God doing it. God was making clear, if you are obedient to me, because... Who, who sends the priests and the band out to fight an army, to take a city? Nobody. March around the city, march around the city, march around the city. On the seventh day, do it seven times. Blow the horns and I'll fight the battle for you. Makes no military sense. And you kind of had to think that the people of Israel were thinking, um, uh, okay, Moses seemed to be pretty good at what he did. Who is this guy, Joshua? Really? March around this city? All right, whatever. And they did. And the walls came a-tumbling down. But it was obedience. Because for God, it was not about the battle of Jericho. It was not about the city walls. It was not about any uh, ability of the people to fight. It was the willingness of the people to obey. The spiritual is always more important than the temporal. Did you hear always, always more important than the temporal. It is always more important how Christians respond, react, live, love, than, and how they are obedient to God than what's going on around us in the world at any particular moment or in our community or in our country. Those things aren't unimportant, but they are not as important as the spiritual and our relationship to a God and obedience to Him. And if we're having trouble with what the obedience should be, the two great commandments always, always line us up. Love God, love your neighbor. If we do those things, he says, all the other law is wrapped up in them. God's side isn't my side. We see that in chapter 5, verse 14. Well, we go through Joshua, I'm sorry, we go through chapter 6. They, they defeat Jericho by doing things that you wouldn't expect. And, and God has this requirement, this requirement for obedience, where he says, when you take Jericho, you are to take nothing uh, from Jericho as your own. You are to set everything aside for me. Don't take plunder, don't take spoils, nothing. Everything in Jericho is mine. Do not take anything. And one fella, we find out, does. They come off this great victory. Uh, they, they, they barely have to lift the sword. They don't have to do anything to... Uh, to take the city, to get into the city. The troops advance, they win the battle. Jericho is theirs. It is theirs. In chapter 7, chapter 7 begins with verse 1, just like all chapters do. And verse 1 says, The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, 
son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. We move into chapter 7, and we see one person's community sin. One person's community sin in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, we don't like this. We don't like the idea of one person be causing community sin. Well, that's just one person. He did it. I didn't do it. Well, that's, that's a nice idea, but that doesn't even work all the way back to uh, the Garden of Eden. As I've uh, co- talked about either last Sunday or the Sunday before, in uh, one of my funeral messages, we talk about, or I talk about, how it just doesn't seem fair that Adam and Eve sinned, so we all suffer from it. And the analogy that's uh, made is it's, it's like a football team. One player commits the penalty, all 11 players or 50 players, the entire team or the entire uh, fan base. I mean, you could get out to thousands, maybe even millions of people suffer that one penalty. One person and they all suffer for it. That is the way of community. One person's sin causes the entire community to suffer. And that's what we see in verse 7. It, look, look at how the, God begins the verse. The Israelites were unfaithful. The Israelites, the entire nation, was unfaithful because of Achan. They don't know this yet. That's the other thing. Israel, as far as we know... And at the, at the most, maybe his family knew what he did, yet Israel, he says, was unfaithful. One man sinned, and the entire nation was unfaithful. You think that's not fair? Take it up with God. I didn't write it, he did. The sin of one person brought judgment on an entire nation. And if you're looking at your your, uh, app or you're looking at the screen behind me, you see that I accidentally typed that twice. That was not an accident. I want you to hear it. The sin of one person brought judgment on an entire nation. Hundreds of thousands of people suffered because of the sin of one person. Now, we look at how they suffered. Well, uh, they, there was a little bit of pride here to begin with. It's, it's I.E., that's the, the next town on the list to attack, I.E.A.I., as, and you pronounce it, I.E. Uh, that, that they go and they scout it out. The guys come back and say, it's easy, especially considering how easy Jericho was. 3,000 men, we got this, not going to be a problem. Now, now here, what's happening here? They are, uh, there's already been disobedience that they don't know about, but it's been there. So it's already, uh, th- their relationship with the Lord is already messed up. But they also, doesn't sound like anyway, they're depending on anybody but themselves. We've got this. We can take, I. It's, it's not a big deal. You know, God's with us, right? He's, he's fighting. This will be simple. So they go and attack 3,000 men. They're routed. They, they, they turn tail and run, and 36 people are killed. Now, that does not sound like a lot. Why are they uh, weeping and mourning over only 36 people? They probably lost more than that in the Battle of Jericho once they got inside the city walls. Why? It, because it's not about the number of people they lost. It wasn't about the size of the defeat, but the mere presence of a defeat. What was the promise? These people won't stand against you. I'm going to give them all to you. You are going to take the land, and I'm going to fight your battles for you. And here, suddenly, they go in to fight this battle, and they lose. They lose handily. It is a rout. Forget about the fact it was only 36 people that died. They are running scared, and they run a long way. And as Joshua laments it, he, verse 6, he tears his clothes, he falls face down, and he, he says, we're going to be a, a, a laughingstock. Really, this is going to be about you, God. He throws it back on him. Uh, when the Canaanites uh, who all who, and all who live in the land hear about this, 
They'll surround us, wipe out your name from the earth. And, and, and back when they took Jericho, he said the opposite, that, that the Canaanites are going to, their hearts will melt because of what they hear. And, and it did. That's, that's what the scripture says, that everybody heard about what went on at Jericho and they thought, we can't stand up against this. Then he says, now they're going to hear about Ai and they're going to say, never mind. Their God ain't nothing. We can handle this. Verse 10, the Lord says, basically, boy, shut up. Get up and listen to what I'm about to tell you because you don't have a clue what's going on. 7-1, it's this one person's community sin and, and, and this defeat that brings about the, the realization that God has, in Joshua's eyes, not kept his promise. Well, we get to verse 11, and we find out that this one act was actually multiple sins. There were multiple things that went on. The Lord says to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Why, basically, why are you telling me these things like I'm the problem here? Like I didn't keep my part of the bargain. Let's go back a little bit. Something you don't know, Joshua, verse 11. Look again at how he says it. Israel has sinned. Verse uh, 1, the Israelites were unfaithful. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. God, it's one person. But God ain't listening to that. God is saying, yeah, one person, and y'all did it. There's, there's this implication, uh, and, and, and it might even be stronger than an implication, that there was an attitude among Israel that led to this situation. Look back. You're stiff-necked people. You have been since, uh, since you left Egypt. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. And he comes, we come to this point, Achan takes what he's not supposed to, which was anything, not supposed to take anything, and the Lord says, Israel has sinned. So there's some background stuff going on here that, um, that leads up to this moment. It, this didn't occur in a vacuum. Nobody else did it, but the, the, um, the atmosphere was uh, right for somebody to, at least that is the implication that we get. Now, at this point, Joshua doesn't know that it's only one person, right? And I'm sure Joshua, when God says to him, Israel has sinned, Joshua wanted to go, um, but how, how, how? We as a whole, we haven't done anything except what you told us, he thought. Uh, one, one author put it this way. He says, uh, Achan robbed the whole nation of the purity and holiness which um, it ought to possess before God. Let me say it again without stumbling over my typo. Achan robbed the whole nation of the purity and holiness which it ought to possess before God. The, one, the presence of one sin in the community messed up the entire nation's relationship with God. Church, what does the presence of one sin among our fellowship do to our church's relationship with God? Based on Scripture, we can say it has a tremendously deleterious effect on that relationship. When someone is in sin in our church, and it is a, a, a certainly, this isn't even a constant thing. This is a one-time act, but it was an act of pure disobedience. So if God says to our church, church, do this, or church, don't do this, all it takes is one person to do or not to do what God said not to do or to do, and we begin to suffer the loss of the relationship because we did not see obedience as holy ground. We expected God would be on our side because we did some things right when in fact we should have been working harder to be on His side. 
and make sure we were on his side. And then we see here uh, some sinful motives for this one action. Now, it, it, he, he basically just took stuff that was um, forbidden, but God lays it out for him in verse 11. Again, plural noun, pronouns. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. Who's they? Israel. And then he says, they have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. So we see disobedience, theft, lying, and selfishness. Now, if we as a church go, well, wait a minute, we don't take things that belong to God for ourselves. Yeah, we do. Um, Preachers all the time take the glory for a good sermon or a good worship service or whatever that belongs rightly to God and say, yep, yeah, that was good. Yeah, we did a good job on that, whatever. And it sounds trite and cliche sometimes for a preacher to say or a, a minister or whatever to say, you know what, that was, that was God's doing. He gets the glory for that. And people go, oh, that's very uh, humble of you. But hopefully it actually is. It's true. If, if I preach a message and it changes your heart, it, does, it is nothing about me. I didn't do anything but read Scripture, explain it to you based on how the Holy Spirit led and people smarter than me who came before me interpreted and explained those passages. That's all I did. If we have a great worship service, and, and right now I'm the one planning the music, the only reason that happened, trust me, the only reason that happened, the only reason that music connected to the sermon, connected to the sermon so well is because the Lord did it. I mean, it was, as an example, last Sunday morning we sang uh, the song at the end of the service of, uh, of a sermon entitled, Don't Forget the Lord, and uh, the line was, and I'm going to look for help here, um, I will not forget, I will remember. Yeah, that's what it was. It was, uh, God, you're so good. And uh, we will remember. I mean, and, and I didn't, when I was playing that song, I didn't sing out all the lyrics as I planned it and say, oh, this will go great with that. It was Sunday morning we were practicing before the service. I went, wait a minute. Oh, my gracious. I picked that song because that was the song the Lord laid on my heart. God got the glory for that, not me. That was not my intelligence, my planning, nor my smarts. So even in a church, we can do this. Of course, we can see uh, disobedience in the church. I think we've seen that before. Though it's, we may not have literal theft of taking things that don't belong to us, talking about taking God's glory, that stealing from Him, lying, happens way too often in the church. Selfishness happens among us. So if we see God taking out or disciplining a, a nation because of one person, what do you think God's going to do to the church that harbors, allows, and it sometimes even encourages those sorts of things among its church members? We will see his discipline. And that's the next and last Point from Scripture, community and individual discipline. And this is where it ends up. Verse 12 of chapter 7, This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. So there's community discipline. God says, I'm not with you anymore. I'm not going in front of you. You're going to run from every battle you face because you will not obey me. You did not obey me, so I'm done. You can go fight your battles. You can take your promised land, but I'm not going to be with you. There was community discipline, again, for one individual. And the community suffered and would continue to suffer until the sin was removed. Until they fixed the problem, they would continue to suffer. That's the promise to the community. Folks, that is the promise to our church. 
that until we are obedient, we will continue to suffer. Will we always be obedient? Will we always get it right? The answer is no, and the answer is no. But if we live in that disobedience, if we don't remove what is set apart, if, as the Scripture says here, if we don't take out and move on from that disobedience, we will continue to suffer discipline. And then in verse 25, we see uh, individual discipline. Joshua tells them, uh, took uh, with all of Israel... Uh, back in 24, actually. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, the things he stole, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up from the valley of Achor, or to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies threw stones on them and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains to still to remains still today then the lord turned from his burning anger the consequences for the individual and his disobedience were just as sure as the consequences for the community and their disobedience there will be discipline for both there, there is discipline for the person that commits the sin, that, that disturbs God's community, God's family, that, that seeks to hurt God's family, God's community. But there are consequences for the community that allows that thing to go on without uh, taking care of it, without removing it, without stopping it. That is clear from scripture because because right let's go back to the title now of the message we are the enemy we're the enemy the enemy is us pogo said the enemy is us god said we are the enemy the trials that we go through, the devil that we want to blame for everything bad that happens, our political opponents to talk about a current event situation, they aren't the enemy. And we shouldn't fear those things because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That's done. That's taken care of. Those battles are won. Those are the things that we focus on and say those are the problems and they are not because we ourselves, we as individuals, are the enemy. We're the enemy to ourselves. We are the ones that will cause our own problems. Yes, sin in the world causes problems uh, uh, for us. But Jesus said, I've overcome the world. That's taken care of. Those outside influences, those are not ours to, to, to concern ourselves with. Paul tells us in Romans, as, as far as it is up to you, live at peace with everyone. So, so whose responsibility is all those people? Well, all those people and God's. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, in another place. Our responsibility is as far as it is up to me. My responsibility is to be obedient my responsibility is to realize that I am the enemy. I am the one that will cause the problems. It is my heart that will turn me to wickedness. It is my heart that will turn me to sin. It, will, it is my heart that will cause me to hate a brother or sister. It is my heart that will cause me to hate someone who isn't my brother and sister in Christ, but is someone created in the image of God for whom Jesus died. It is my heart that will uh, lead me towards sin. It is my heart that is the enemy to me. I am the enemy to my family. If I don't lead well, if I allow sin to take over my life and hurt my family, destroy my relationships, mess up my kids, I am the enemy to my family. I am the enemy to our church. You are the enemy to your church. It's us. It is our community, our family, our fellowship 
that suffers when you or I are uh, living in sin. It is us, we as individuals, that will cause the downfall of our church. No government can cause the downfall of a church. Look at China if you don't believe me. They're trying and they're failing. Grandly, they are failing. The government doesn't do that. It is the church that causes the downfall of a church. You want to see a church dry up and die? Or, see, or, or study the reasons why a church dries up and die, dies? Look at its people. They were the enemy to their own church. We are the enemy believers. We are the enemy to our community if we are not living in obedience. If we are not following the Lord. If we are expecting Him to be on our side rather than us being on His. We are the enemy. The reality is, just as Jesus has overcome the world... And therefore, we shouldn't fear all that's out there. It is our sin that is in the, the enemy. We are the enemy. Jesus, just as clearly, just as strongly, and just as permanently overcame sin as well. Our sin is the enemy, and Jesus has overcome that. So even that isn't a done deal. Jesus' overcoming is. Our sin isn't a done deal. Our sin is taken care of. Our sin is taken care of now. We are provided the way to overcome it now, and we are provided the way to overcome it forever. Jesus has overcome our sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. We have all sinned. And sin is that enemy. As a matter of fact, it is such an enemy that its wages is death, eternal separation from God. But Jesus has overcome it. Jesus is the gift from God, and it's eternal life that he brings us through his body, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, through, the, his, through who he is. We experience eternal life. We overcome sin. So even sin, even though I am the enemy, and sin is the enemy that makes me the enemy, that does not mean that I don't have a way to overcome it. God proves his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though sin was battling us, even though sin had won at that point, Christ died for us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sin does not have the final word. Your ultimate enemy does not have to win. Your ultimate enemy being not a person, not a party, not a thing, not a devil, but sin. That is your enemy, and it cannot win in Jesus Christ. But without Jesus Christ, it has already won. You're already condemned without Jesus. Your, your enemy is victorious. So this morning, two things, two responses that you should have, and it will vary depending on where you are in your personal life and, and who... Uh, who you are in relation to Jesus. If you're not a believer, then you need to overcome the enemy of sin. You need to make the, the put the final and, and, and uh, um, uh, well, we'll just, the, 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 well, I can't think of the word I want. The, the nail in the coffin, the dagger through the heart of sin. That's Jesus Christ. The nails in the cross or the nails in the coffin for sin. It's over. It's done with. You, you, will not, you will not suffer from its eternal effects again if you trust Jesus Christ, unbeliever. If you go back and uh, look at the, the screen again and, and see those verses, that's how you accept Christ. That's it. Believer, you have overcome sin, but we've got a long way to go before we 
realize the full effects of sinlessness. Like death, that's, that's the only way we get to be sin-free. So we must constantly struggle and fight against the enemy, ourselves. Because church, we look around, we try to figure out why we aren't as effective here or there or in this ministry or doing that. We try to figure out what's going on and why we aren't, quote, successful. And we want to blame a lot of things. We want to look at a lot of different ways when in fact we must look at ourselves and admit we have met the enemy and he is us. Through dependence on Christ, we can overcome even that enemy. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, that, that we have the, the power to overcome every enemy. You've defeated the world. You've overcome it. You've defeated sin. You've overcome it. And Lord, we as uh, your people must trust you with the rest of all of it, all of it, trust you with the world, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, through your working in our lives, through our dependence on your word, we defeat the enemy of sin in our lives. We constantly buffet our bodies. We, 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 we fight. It, it is a war in ourselves, Paul says, over and over and over, to be who we are supposed to be. And God, we, we pray that we would find that holy ground of obedience and we would look to you. We would trust you. And God, we would see you work in a mighty way. When things don't go right, Lord, may we look and see if there may be some disobedience. And when things go well, may you get the glory for doing something amazing in our lives. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time, even scattered like this again to come to your word and worship you. Work in our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, if you want have some response you'd like to make, if you want to accept Christ, you can message us there on Facebook. Email us here at the church. Go to our, our web page, fbcsulfur.org. Uh, our email address that you could contact is admin at fbcsulfur.org. We'd love to hear what the Lord's doing in your heart. Uh, if you would uh, like to share a prayer request or uh, just let us know you were watching this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Um, also on YouTube, I believe, that is where this video is, so you'll, you can comment there. Just let us know. And may God work on you to defeat the, the most powerful enemy that you have, yourself. God bless you. And we'll see you next week in this same manner. And in two weeks, we'll see you live.